This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 91, Love's Labors Not Lost. When Winston was touring Canada, he had learned of the end of Queen Victoria's long reign. It was also the end of his relationship with Pamela Plowden, or rather, her relationship with him. She, too, had crossed the Atlantic and was perhaps hoping that while they were away from merry old England, they could have a merry old time in Canada. But it was not to be. Winston never made a move that a young lady was supposed to slap away. And that was it for Pamela. She returned to Britain and, just to show Winston how it was done, managed to get engaged twice within two weeks. She was soon thereafter married. Churchill, taking up the challenge, pursued two other young ladies. First, he chased after and seemed to have caught the beautiful Ethel Barrymore, a 24-year-old American actress. Theirs were days of dinners, flowers, and little notes that culminated in a splendid little meeting at Blenheim on July 13, 1902. He proposed, but she declined exiting stage left from his life with the line that she would, quote, not be able to cope with the great world of politics, unquote. Then Winston spent time with the older, less attractive, but astoundingly more well-off Muriel Wilson. They toured Italy together in a sports car. He proposed half-heartedly, but she rejected him wholeheartedly and left him in the dust with a comment that, to her, he didn't seem to have much of a future. Here, Winston's childhood impeded his efforts. The opposite genders of Winston's class were segregated from age 10 
to 22. And now suddenly, he was supposed to have the knowledge and skills to successfully pursue a lady. In today's terms, we call this setting one up for failure. Still, other men managed it, but not Winston. During a party at Salisbury Hall, Jenny introduced a young lady, Clementine Hoser, to Winston. But the young man, only interested in himself and owning no small talk, said exactly nothing to her. She started off with, quote, how do you do, unquote. But Winston just looked at her. Here's how she remembered it. Quote, Winston just stared. He never uttered one word and was very gauche. He never asked me for a dance. He never asked me to have supper with him. I had, of course, heard a great deal about him. Nothing but ill, unquote. Winston couldn't even let a lady know he desired her by, quote, peering down Pennsylvania Avenue, unquote, a colloquialism for staring at a lady's cleavage. Suddenly, after many minutes of uncomfortable silence, Winston asked her how old she was. This was the extent of his conversation with the vast majority of the women of his acquaintance. But even when she answered him with 19, he suddenly seemed depressed. He moaned and told her he was already 32, as if he might pop off any day. Suddenly, he went from unable to speak to unable to stop speaking. He ranted about how short life was and that one had to squeeze in so much into such a short time that it was depressing. He ended this one-man act by telling her, quote, We are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm, unquote. Besides his segregated childhood, his mother's relationship with men affected Winston's ability to understand women as individuals. To him, they were all just short of angels. That is, just as two-dimensional as he found them in books. To complicate matters, his mother, now remarried, seems to have climbed back into His Royal Highness's, now His Majesty's, bed. But putting aside affairs of the heart and focusing on affairs of state, the battle for control of the country continued in the House of Commons. The Tories, or Conservatives, had scored a few recent victories. Mandatory trade union contributions were outlawed to Labour Party candidates, which meant less money for them to stand for Parliament. And as it cost at least a thousand pounds to stand for office, the Labour candidates, who did manage to win, normally ended up advocating, not for the poor, who had not contributed to their victory, but the middle class, obviously owning a very different set of needs from their poorer brethren. And concerning the downtrodden, even though a royal commission to study the poor law was established in 1905, its findings were never really widely circulated, again, thanks to the Tories. Yes, the previous two or three decades before Churchill and Lloyd George roared onto the scene, the world of the power brokers was small, painfully similar, and more often than not, related. As William Manchester notes, it was a world of the waltz, not the ragtime. But a change was in the wind. And in the middle of all this change was Winston, who would no more bow down to the leaders of the left than he did for the right. First, he mused out loud about a rule that said no MP could be the director of a public company, 
which was currently being ignored by 31 of the 55 liberal ministers, calling it a, quote, laxity of principle, unquote. But looking back, the change coming concerning the poor and their welfare was not within a vacuum. Attendance to church, the base of the Tory party, was declining. Religious tolerance was rearing its ugly head. And, frankly, simple answers to complex questions were no longer accepted at face value. People were looking away from the Bible for answers. Alongside these changes within the human heart, technology was altering some people's everyday lives. Ships were becoming larger and faster. There were more cars on the road, and they, too, were covering distances at a faster rate. King Edward VII was able to speak with President Theodore Roosevelt by wireless in 1903. And among all this was the Pleasant Sunday Afternoon, or PSA. People, instead of heading to church, were forming into crowds and then into audiences to listen to speakers of many subjects. Some entertained, some bedazzled, I'm sure a few hoodwinked, but their collective result was to make people think about their future and that it could be better. Their children's lives could be better. And the answers weren't in the gospel or having the same occupation as your parents, nor accepting your fate or place in life. Life was now about change and improvement and expecting the government to help out, in some ways to lead the charge. And all this meant the vote. Yes, the dock workers, miners, and those adding on to the railroad clamored for change and improvement, for better working conditions, in short, for respect. But it was their wives and sisters who went to the heart of the matter. They wanted the vote, demanded the vote. During Edward's reign, fewer than one-third of the people could cast a ballot. A voter had to be the head of a household or a lodger with no debt. Good luck with that. Uh, educated and, oh, they had to be male. Sadly, Winston missed the bus on this issue, bringing back a word that had dropped out of usage. He let it be known that he would not be henpecked on such an important issue. But many husbands were, and some of those husbands sat in the House of Commons. Their wives became the foundation for the suffragettes, who may not have had large numbers, but their radicalism made sure the issue never went too far from anyone's mind. But this explosive subject did not touch Winston, not yet. He had removed himself when not in the well of the house to write a two-volume work on his father, Lord Randolph Churchill. So, almost every night, he could be found sitting in his father's chair behind his father's desk, using his father's pen and inkwell to write of the man who had abused him more than any other. But that wasn't the story that was put on paper. No, this was a tribute to Lord Randolph, who had blazed a trail that Winston desired to follow, up to a point. When not riding or battling the Tories in the house, Winston, still a Victorian creature, was having his bath drawn, his clothes put out, his floor swept, and the house dusted by others. All the while, his wine stock was being looked over by his new valet, George Scrivings. When riding, Winston rarely poked his head outdoors, but once Lord Randolph Churchill was finished, Winston traveled, attended parties, and perhaps began once again to look for a wife. The two-volume work was well-received, 
selling almost 6,000 copies straight away, with a U.S. edition and then a single-volume edition doing just as well. But, as it has been a while since Winston nearly died, now would be a good time to bring up his brother's wedding. Jack got married in an ornate country home near Oakham. Inside the structure, in Burley-on-the-Hill, were paneling, tapestries, Elizabethan manuscripts, and a newly installed heating system that started a fire in the middle of the night while everyone slept. The bride and groom were already gone, and fortunately, someone either saw or smelled smoke and started screaming. Winston, oh, so being at Churchill, grabbed a fireman's hat, ran to the roof of the building, yes, the very building that was on fire, and began shouting orders, which were, of course, obeyed. A much too small fire engine was brought over, and the battle began. But the fire had too good of a head start, and the entire structure was lost. Fortunately, no one died. Winston, who kept up his correspondence with Clementine Hoser, wrote to her, quote, The fire was great fun, and we all enjoyed it thoroughly. It is a pity such jolly entertainments are so costly. Unquote. As for her response, we will save that for later. Winston had spent his first 18 months as a liberal, being fairly subdued. Instead, he focused on the book about his father and spending time in Manchester, building a base for the next election. But even among the liberals, Churchill steered his own course. For now, he stuck mainly to safe subjects about modernizing the army and the overall lowering of government spending. Of course, he never let up on Balfour, the prime minister. Winston saw the man as lacking principle or guidance for his party or the country and said so. And the drip, drip of invectives was getting to the leader of the house. So much so that on December 4th, 1905, Balfour stepped down from office. But quite frankly, he was played out. He didn't have the enthusiasm anymore and couldn't work with Joe Chamberlain like times past. Campbell Bannerman, or CB, his time had come. The king asked him to form a government and he asked Churchill which position he wanted. Winston asked for, and got, to be the Undersecretary of State for the colonies. And since the secretary over him was the Earl of Elgin, a member of the House of Lords, Winston would handle the matters of the colonies in the House of Commons. Of course, the Tories criticized this appointment, saying Winston only changed parties to further himself. But they were always tearing into him. The only thing that changed were the reasons for their shouting. And yet, Winston was not happy. He felt he should be further along, given his stern belief that he would be dead by 1920. But there was only one thing to do, and that was to make the best of a bad job. So Winston chose for his private secretary, Edward Marsh, from the West African Department. Marsh was almost unknown, but thorough, knowledgeable, and well-connected. He was also gay. But to Winston, he considered the subject none of his business. Still, Marsh wasn't sure he wanted to work with Winston. He wasn't even sure he liked him. Churchill, he said, scared him. The man was so bombastic, and he could be very cutting in his language. But Winston set out to woo and win the man over. And he did. Over dinner, they talked of many things. Well, Churchill did most of the talking. But what convinced Marsh was the politician's sheer eloquence 
That night, Winston told Marsh what a great nation should be. Quote, in war, resolution. In defeat, defiance. In victory, magnanimity. In peace, goodwill. Unquote. And they would work well together for the next 30 years. And it was time to go to work. With Balfour stepping down, it was time for another election. And this would be Winston's first as a bona fide liberal. Touring the slums of Manchester, Winston, with Marsh in tow, said, quote, Fancy living in one of these streets, never seeing anything beautiful, never eating anything savory, never saying anything clever. Unquote. Winston had to be himself. But the political fight was ugly from the outset. All nine seats around Manchester were held by Tories, and they circled the wagons. Churchill tried his best to stay away from acrimony, but the Tories had pamphlets circulated with the many quotes from Winston about the Liberals when he was a conservative. His response, quote, I said a lot of stupid things when I worked with the Conservative Party, and I left it because I did not want to go on saying stupid things, unquote. And then dramatically, he would seize one of the pamphlets, tear it up, and scatter it to the winds. The crowd around him cheered. Of the election, he was the most exciting bit of it. Halls where he would speak were packed well before he showed up. The hat he was wearing had gone out of fashion, but now, thanks to him, was being brought back. The hat industry was grateful for the surge in sales. During the election, Winston stumbled a few times certainly when it came to women's rights, but he sensed an overall change in the air, and he was right. The people voted on January 13, 1906, and all nine Tories lost their seats to the Liberals. But it only got worse for the Conservatives. Going into the election, they held 400 seats, but now they were down to 157. However, what no one not even Winston noticed, was that there were now 53 Labour members who filled some of the seats. And soon enough, this party would present a challenge for the new majority. And with these election results, Winston now faced his hardest task. Just like his father before him, or any politician who had earned his marks by attacking those who made the decisions and made them badly, he was now one of the decision-makers. He and his would have to lead and be attacked in their turn. In short, his outlook had to be constructive instead of destructive. So he spent his days helping the overwhelmed Secretary of State for Colonial Affairs. Churchill answered the day-to-day -day questions and drafted responses, while his superior used his connections to persuade his peers to accept what Winston had written up. Churchill dealt with the unrest on Cyprus, Jewish immigrants on the home island, helped the Zulu tribes mistreated by the Natal state, and the ever-present ripples of unrest in India. As touching South Africa, Winston led the way in proposing segments of the Transvaal Constitution, and would later do the same for the Orange Free Colony, which would become, once again, the Orange Free State. It's worth noting that those countries' voting laws proposed by Churchill were more open than Britain's. But Balfour was back, thanks to a by-election, and he fought against Winston's proposals. But his preeminence was gone. The measures passed, and Botha, the man who captured Churchill during the train ambush, was now Prime Minister. 
When they met a few years later, Botha recognized Winston as his former prisoner, to which Winston replied, he had always considered the reward for his recapture stingy. With this latest victory dangling from his belt, Campbell Bannerman, or CB, let it be known that Winston would be promoted to a cabinet position just as soon as one came open. But now, as far as Winston was concerned, it was time for a break, and perhaps to make some money. So, in mid-year of 1907, Winston left the country for five months. With ever-changing companions, he reviewed French military maneuvers, was beside cousin Sonny when he shot at Partridges and Morovia, went to Vienna and Syracuse, and met up with Marsh, his personal secretary, and George Scrivings, his valet, on Malta. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. There, Churchill had the cruiser Venus at his disposal, and they headed to Greece, then threaded the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. Stopping in Mombasa, it was time for some hunting, though by sitting in the front of a train given over to him. Animals of all kinds fell to his gun, but the one he certainly can be excused for was when a rhino charged at him during a stop. But the animal's life, not Winston's came to an end when he fired, quote, a heavy four fifty rifle and hit her plumb in the chest, unquote. So that's what, two near-death experiences so far in this episode? And counting. Due to Churchill's position within the government, he was given tribute along the way. Soon, he had collected just over a hundred sheep, seven bulls, a pile of ivory, an ostrich egg, and some leopard skins. But he lost Scrivings, his valet, the man keeping up with every moving party and Churchill's every need, got a disease and died. Winston asked the Dublin Fusiliers to give the man a military funeral, and it was granted. Churchill, who felt everything when he felt anything deeply, was now ready to go home. So, going through Wadi Halfa and Cairo, he then made his way to London. Settling down into his new home at 12 Bolton Street, just off Piccadilly, Winston readied himself for his next battle, but he also enjoyed the surge in his finances. The Strand paid him £750 for the four articles on his recent journey, and he received a £500 advance for his forthcoming book, My African Journey. 
His vacation came to an end on January 8, 1908, when he told the National Liberal Club that he was ready to take the fight to the conservatives. But they were waiting for him. Also, fate, or rather, Father Time, stepped in. In this instance, on the side of the Tories. While Winston had been traveling, Campbell Bannerman's health had been failing. He knew he wouldn't be able to lead, much less fight the good fight. So he stepped down on April 3, 1908. Herbert Asquith replaced him as party leader. But this meant forming a new government. And on the same day that C.B. stepped down, Asquith told Churchill he was to be the president of the Board of Trade. Congratulations were in order. Another promotion. But there was one small problem. Since 1660, the law demanded that anyone appointed to a cabinet position had to stand for re-election. And the seat Winston won, which was traditionally conservative, was only won by him in the previous overwhelming anti-conservative wave that everyone knew wouldn't last. The Tories had been waiting for a moment like this and made the most of it. But Winston's real antagonists came in the form of the suffragettes, which he had never worked at appeasing, and a third-party candidate who represented the Marxist Social Democratic Federation. The ladies he was unable to woo, much like in his personal life, and the third-party candidate refused to step aside, although he had no chance of winning. Winston lost by 529 votes. Not that it mattered. He was immediately offered several other safe liberal seats. And he chose the one from Dundee, as that MP had just been elevated to the peerage. He wrote to Clementine after his loss, quote, Life, for all its incompleteness, is rather fun sometimes. Unquote. The pair had been reacquainted again after four years of silence, since the day Churchill did little more than stare and lecture her at her party. But this reunion, as it were, almost didn't happen. They had both been invited to a party hosted by Lady June, who helped Winston when trying to be allowed to travel with Kitchener to Contorum. At the moment the dinner started, Winston was in a bath, relaxing. Eddie Marsh found him so disposed and shooed him out of the tub and out the front door. Meanwhile, Clementine, who had been giving French lessons that day, to help bring in some money, was too tired to get dressed up and entertain. Her mother, however, had different ideas and fussed at her daughter until she, too, changed clothes and grabbed a cab. So both were late for the dinner and therefore sat next to each other to minimize the disruption to the night. But this time, Winston did more than stare at the 23-year-old in front of him. He talked and talked, mostly about himself, but at least he was engaging her. She replied, when he allowed her to, that no, she had not read the book about his father. He promised to send her a copy, but then forgot. But he didn't forget about her. He soon thereafter had Jenny invite Clementine to her husband's family home, Salisbury Hall, and got himself invited. Their conversation picked up where it left off, and soon no one else seemed to exist for the couple. But then, whether to stop the growing interest in her daughter and her daughter's growing interest in the polarizing young politician, or just having incredibly bad timing, Clementine's mother decided to take her daughter on a six-week holiday. But if Winston couldn't be with her, his letters were. They followed her while she was on the continent. He wrote of her beauty and his respect 
for her well-developed mind. And when he mentioned the fire at his brother's wedding, she replied, quote, My dear, my heart stood still with terror. Unquote. Affection grew between them, encouraged by friends and cousins on both sides. In short, they were seen as a good match. She came from relatively modest means. Her social credentials were above reproach, but certainly not on par with Winston's. And she was intelligent, strong-willed, and ready to support the man she fell in love with. And Winston was determined to be that man. It was time to pop the question. Churchill had his cousin, the Duke of Marlborough, invite her to Blemen. He would be there, too, for a small party. Along with her invitation, she received from Winston a letter saying he could not wait to see her again at the palace, and that he was sure his cousin would also be fascinated by, quote, those strange, mysterious eyes of yours, whose secret I have been trying so hard to learn. Till Monday, then, and may the fates play fair, unquote. Clementine knew what was coming and had to consider her options. She had already turned out one offer from a man far richer than Winston, but she was looking for love. Had she found it? The party took place on Monday, August 10th, 1908, and their talk that night left no doubt in her mind what would come the next day. They made a date to take a walk the next morning, but then it all fell apart. That is to say, Winston was nowhere to be seen. Clementine had risen early, as was her wont, had breakfast, and waited, and then waited some more. Horror-stricken, Ed Bean stood up. She considered hastily packing and making for the train station. Just then, Sonny jumped into the breach, sent someone to shake the hell out of Winston from his slumber, and offered to take the mortified young lady on a carriage ride around the grounds. Crisis averted, the walk Winston wanted to take with her was postponed until that afternoon. But then, as he was about to do the deed, the heavens opened up and rain drenched the two would-be lovers. Running underneath a Greek temple, cold, wet, with teeth chattering, Winston proposed, and the equally shivering, teeth-chattering Clementine accepted. But she made him promise not to tell anyone until she told her mother. Winston agreed, and then ran to the house, waving his arms, shouting the good news. Despite this stumbling start, Lady Blanche, Winston's future mother-in-law, embraced the marriage, and the high-strung young man. But there was no time for enjoyment. The date had been set for September 12th, and the arrangements had to be made. Linky Cecil was the best man. The invitations, including those for Sir Benton Blood, Ian Hamilton, and, of course, Lloyd George, were sent out, and the place was selected. St. Margaret's Church, Westminster. But nothing has any business being perfect, and Winston obliged with his attire. The periodical Taylor and Cutter said, quote, It was one of the greatest failures as a wedding garment we have ever seen, giving the wearer a sort of glorified coachman appearance. Unquote. But that was the only hiccup. Well, from Winston's perspective anyway. Clementine found herself having to make room in her new life for politics and work. Right after the ceremony, she found Winston closeted with Lloyd George, discussing their strategy. At the beginning of their honeymoon, he finished up his book about his African tour. At the end of their honeymoon, her husband was replying to dozens of letters or messages about this or that proposal. 
And all this was only after she found out about his undergarments, which were made from the finest silk and came in a pale pink. Clementine, ever watchful for money going out, quickly calculated that about 80 pounds a year went into this self-indulgence. But Winston, unabashed, set her straight. Quote, it is essential to my well-being. I have a very delicate and sensitive cuticle, which demands the finest covering. Unquote. Perhaps this knowledge makes one more tolerant of Winston during his days as an escaped POW, when in the mine or in the boxcar and among the coal dust. Like many other young lovers, they had nicknames for each other and left the other loving notes. But in their case, the latter was imperative. The cute little names given had evolved. For Clementine, it was Cat with a C to Cat with a K, and his went from Pug to Pig. The notes, however, were a different story. She rose early and went to bed early. Winston rose late and went to bed even later. And when he was awake, he was always working, either for the liberals or on his books, but always in motion. The letters between them kept their affection intact, and a connection between the two. Winston firmly held to his belief that, quote, breakfast should be had in bed, alone, unquote. Clementine was pregnant the following month, and the unborn child also got a nickname, Puppy Kitten, or PK. PK meant a new, larger residence was in order. So, the Churchills moved, in early 1909, to a house at 33 Eccleston Square. Moving in during May, Cat gave birth to a girl three months later. She was named Diana, and was followed up by a brother, Randolph, of course, two years later. Being married to Winston, there was bound to be trouble, or at least drama. The Churchills were not rich by any means, and Clementine, or Cat, continued on with her frugal ways, luckily for Winston, because he was mostly indifferent to the bills she waved in his face. He had always owed someone something. But the money would be forthcoming. He would see to that. So why bother so? But that was Winston the husband. Winston the irascible politician was another story. He chose poorly at times and made foes of those that it was unwise to cross. No, not the conservatives or any organized crime associations, but that more dangerous group, women scorned. In November of that year, 1909, Winston was attacked by Teresa Garnett. She tried to open up his face with a whip. Winston grabbed her arm and they struggled, coming ever closer to the tracks as a train came on. This could have been Garnett's backup plan. But right before the train came on, Clementine pulled Winston, and therefore Garnett, out of danger. Another attack came a few months later from a male supporter of the women's cause. Winston then, too, defended himself physically. Secretly, he was coming round to their ideas, but refused to say so publicly, while these victims of unfair legislation tried to make victims, in a very real sense, of others. But he would declare for them openly by 1912. As far as the Tories went, the political animal that was Winston continued to fight back, and with Clementine's support, he had it unwaveringly, was, along with Lloyd George, offering a vision of the government unheard of at the time. And, of course, it had that Churchillian twist. He firmly believed he was placed on the planet at this time, in this country, 
to do good. Quote, Why have I always been kept safe within a hair's breadth except to do something like this? Unquote. Whether this was a logical question or not is not the point. He believed it, so acted thusly. He declared that the Liberals and Labor Party had the same goals and the same enemies, and that the country must, quote, concern itself with the care of the sick and the aged and, above all, of the children, unquote. He also declared it was the government's duty to be, quote, the reserve employer of labor, unquote, with public works. Where had this Winston come from? He had only seen, or rather, really looked at the conditions of the poor only once. And the rest of his imagery came from recommended books he read. The answer was, not unexpectedly, part humane, part self-serving. Firstly, who could look on the suffering of fellow countrymen and not be moved? As to the real world, the liberals were being challenged on their left by labor, and Winston sensed this. Better to move now and steal the thunder of the left before they stole the treasury bench, the seat where the cabinet sat in the House of Commons. And the team, made up of Asquith as Prime Minister, Winston, the Board of Trade, and Lloyd George at the Exchequer, pushed the national argument to the left. Their Prime Minister, not wanted to be seen as left out, proposed a modest program of free food and medical care for schoolchildren. When the Tories vehemently attacked this plan, Winston and Lloyd George tried to outdo each other with invectives against their seemingly uncaring, financially secure betters. But those vocal crescendos were nothing as compared to what was coming in dealing with the House of Lords. Winston steered small proposals through the House, helping the poor in the different areas of their lives. But he went further. In every city he represented, Winston set up a labor exchange where the unemployed could meet with trade union reps and seek employment. Back in the House, Winston wrote an unemployment insurance bill. Alongside this, Lloyd George was keeping pace by introducing all-age pensions and an expanded National Health Insurance Act. But the conservatives had had enough. Balfour knew he couldn't stop these from passing, but there was a body that could. The House of Lords. And the former Prime Minister urged the Upper House to do exactly that. So when an education bill passed the House, the Upper House shredded it. Next, a voting bill made it to the Upper Chamber. It died a quick death, too. So did three other proposals. Now, technically, the House of Lords was within their right to veto bills. But, since 1660, tradition stipulated that any proposals dealing with finances that passed the House was guaranteed passage in the House of Lords as well. Thus, the stage was set for the People's Budget Battle of 1909. When the bill was presented in April, Winston and Lloyd George were going far beyond simply raising revenue for the government. They were attempting to redistribute wealth. Within the proposed laws was a minimum wage clause and duties of many kinds on the wealthy. For example, land would be assessed whether used or not, and those that received more than £3,000 a year now faced an additional tax. All told, these measures only affected just over 1,100 men of the realm. But they and theirs controlled the country. Lines were drawn. Friendships were cleaved in twain. Sonny and Winston were separated by two different worldviews. 
and the House of Lords, against the advice of some of their Tory comrades, vetoed the people's budget. A crisis on a national scale was in the making. Instead of calming things down, Winston and Lloyd George leaped into the fray, calling the Lords out for their overreach of power. Winston got it started by describing the members of the House of Lords as, quote, one-sided, hereditary, unpurged, unrepresentative, absentee. Has the House of Lords ever been right? Unquote. But Lloyd George was right there beside his liberal comrade. Quote, a fully equipped duke cost as much to keep up as two dreadnoughts, and the dukes are just as great a terror, and they last longer. Unquote. Also, those that inherited were simply, quote, the first of the litter. Unquote. Surely there was nothing special about them. Winston, perhaps feeling outdone, crossed any imaginable line with this. Quote, These unfortunate individuals, who want to lead quiet, delicate, sheltered lives, far from the maddening crowd's ignoble strife, have been dragged into the football scrimmage, and they have got rather roughly mauled in the process. Do not let us be too hard on them. It is poor sport, almost like teasing goldfish. And if a few bright gold scales have been rubbed off in what the Prime Minister calls the variegated handling they have received, they will soon get over it. They have got plenty more. Unquote. For many of Winston's peers, this was the last straw. He had betrayed his class. The gossip and ridicule that swirled about Winston, and more importantly, his family line, hit him like his rifle bullet hit the rhino. And in a moment of despair, Winston doubted himself and his course. But there was Clementine to write him again. She wrote to her weakened husband, quote, They can't bear the idea of the lower classes being independent and free. They want them to sweat for them when they are well, and touch their caps and drop curtsies when the great people go by, unquote. Even King Edward VII was shocked what he read in the newspapers. So, taking a few minutes from his life of pleasure, he told his secretary, Lord Knollys, to tell the Times that he was saddened by Winston's words. But, by stepping into the fray, the king stepped over the line. He could not interfere. Only his ministers could. Although Churchill and Lloyd George were enjoying the fight, Prime Minister Asquith's nerves were being torn apart. He honestly felt that the support the Liberal Party had once enjoyed was lost. Or maybe it wasn't. Either way, it was time to find out what the people thought of this mess. So, in January 1910, he called for a general election. The only issue that mattered was the people versus the peers. But all on the left were in for a surprise, as the Conservatives picked up 116 seats, and the Liberal majority was now down to just two seats. But all this fighting, nay, the entire British world, came to a halt on May 6, 1910, when King Edward VII unexpectedly died. Afterward, during the toasts of Long Live the King, Winston, thinking of Edward's son, now George V, and Jenny, thinking of her late lover, a changing of the guard took place. But in this instance, we mean the ladies that surrounded the crown and their influence. George V was not his father. He stayed out of the fray and let his ministers do their job. Jenny and others of the late king's favor knew their time had passed. 
During a sad dinner at Jenny's home, Alice Kempel, the late king's favorite, advised Clementine that if she really wanted to help Winston's career, the best thing to do now was to find a rich and powerful lover. She would be able to enjoy her tryst, and a grateful Winston would have a new ally. Kempel even offered to find a suitable applicant. But Clementine politely turned down the offer. Word soon got out that Winston's wife was, quote, positively selfish, unquote. The times indeed were a-changing. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So before I thank all my newest members and those that made donations, I would like to tell you about the next contest that I'm doing, a kind of a, a fun way to end the year. So I've had a white coffee mug made up with a picture of Churchill looking none too pleased, and on the other side of it it says, Don't worry, Winston wasn't a morning person either. So it's a really cute thing, and I'll put a picture of it on the website and uh, Facebook and Twitter when, I, when it actually gets here. Um, so if you want to uh, enter the contest, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.net and just maybe put contest in the title and that way I'll know. So we've already had a lot of people sign up because I told some people on Facebook and Twitter, but just send me your email when you can. Again, I'll put a picture up. It's really cute. It's really funny. Um, and so we'll just have some fun with that and I'll get my daughters back on here because they love doing that kind of thing. And I finally have the details for the tour that's coming up next year. Uh, in order to give everybody enough time to think about it and maybe make arrangements, it's been moved to uh, October of next year. So we'll all meet together in London on September 30th of next year. We'll spend the day in London. We'll go to a pub and we'll go to the uh, Churchill War Room. And then after that, I think the next day we're going to go spend time at Bletchley Park in Blenheim. And then the next day, we'll head down south to Portsmouth to the D-Day Museum and see um, the preparation for uh, Operation Overlord. And after we cross the channel, of course, we'll go to Normandy Beach, the cemetery, U Utah Beach. And then we'll spend time in uh, Paris, um, taking a tour and, and follow the footsteps uh, that Hitler did on his day that he was there. And of course, after that, we'll go to the Maginot Line and see a part of that that's still standing. And then we'll head off to Luxembourg and see uh, General Patton's grave and a V um, rocket launch site. And then the part that I'm really looking forward to, of course I'm looking forward to the whole thing, but is then, then we're going to go to Dunkirk and uh, check out the Dynamo Museum and, and look at the Belgium Underground. So I'm really looking forward to all this, and we'll end up um, parting company 
which will be really sad, in Brussels on October 10th. So um, pretty soon I'll have the email address and the phone number for you probably by the next episode so you can write in or call in and get all the information. Um, so it's, it's coming together. But the good news is you have a whole nother year to think about it and to plan things out. So we are finally getting there. Sorry for all the delays. So I'd like to thank my newest members for coming on board. Uh, Christopher T. And then Matthew T. from Janesville, Wisconsin. Carl B. from Tasmania, Australia. Stephen W. from Las Vegas, Nevada. Darren O. Charles H. from Oban in UK. Michael A. from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Susan T. from Novato, California. I'm sure I said that wrong. And for the two people that made um, donations, I want to thank you as well. Kristen F. from Norway. And... Esther G from Oslo, Norway. So thank you very much for that. I really do appreciate it. It goes a long way in helping me on getting more material for the podcast. And I just want my newest members to know that the next couple of episodes I do will be about the relationship between IBM and Nazi Germany before and during the war. There were some amazing accusations, and a lot of it's been, unfortunately, verified through um, documents and files and witnesses. So we're going to explore that a little bit. And then we're going to go on to um, right before the war started, um, somebody in Nazi Germany had the idea of um, counterfeiting a whole bunch of money, uh, a lot of money in British pounds, and later on in U.S. dollars. And the only people that had the skill set for this were certain Jewish prisoners. So the um, Nazis, being Nazis, said, work for us or die. So that was put into place, and it's a pretty amazing story. And then we'll probably go back and take a look at Krupp after the Franco-Prussian War. So I will see you as soon as I can with episode 92. And if anybody wants to write in with questions for me to answer on my 100th episode, um, I'll start to gather those, and we can. I'm still trying to figure out what exactly I'm going to do, but we'll just have some fun with it. So uh, I will see you as soon as I can. And as Churchill told Clementine, may the fates play fair. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.